times, uh, that they're new every day, and that you reveal them to us in uh, awesome and amazing ways. Um, thank you to Dr. Kruger. Thank you for bringing him here. Uh, thank you for his uh, lecture and words this morning. Um, Father, I do ask that you would bless him. Be with him by the power of your spirit as he speaks to us now. Um, bless us and uh, be with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, thank you guys for coming out. Dr. Kruger is going to talk about uh, the Gospels. Um, about 40 minutes of lecture and then about 20 minutes of Q&A. So please give a warm welcome to Dr. Michael Kruger. Buddy. Well, this is nice setting here. Let me make sure I'm on. Where's my sound guy in the back? Up? Good? Keep going, keep going. All right. Well, welcome. We've got a little bit more of an informal setting here. Uh, and this is a different kind of event. This morning was more of a sermon. And uh, today will be, I think, more of a lecture. And so hopefully this will be a chance for us to go deeper into some of the sort of core details of canon and text and these sorts of things. There we go. Now, I'm, you, get, you hearing me in the back a little better? Okay, good. I see some heads nodding. I think they're picking up on the sound. Um, but this has been fun. Thanks for coming out, and thanks for getting your double credit of chapel. Um, but uh, hopefully you're here for more than that. I trust uh, that you are. Uh, the theme uh, that we've been working through so far this week has been this theme of authority of Scripture. Now, that's a massive topic, authority of Scripture. And so what I'm going to do today and tomorrow is narrow it down for you in a couple of subtopics. And these subtopics are going to be centered on uh, my area of speciality, which is going to be New Testament canon and text and these sorts of things. So today I'm going to be talking on the Bible's Missing Books. The title of my talk officially is The Bible's Missing Books, Our Culture's Quest to Rewrite the Story of Jesus. And then tomorrow I'll be talking about the five biggest misconceptions about the formation of the New Testament canon. In both those presentations, my goal is to give you about 30 or 40 minutes of content, and then I want to hear from you. I want to hear your questions, your uh, queries, other kinds of comments you might have about the material, because there's a lot here uh, related to this that uh, I know you're going to have uh, questions about. So I want to leave plenty of time for that before we're done. All right, let's dive into this first topic then about the Bible's missing books. And I'm going to start in a rather unusual place. I want to start talking about this by talking about Muhammad Ali for a moment. Now, I know you're thinking, that's weird. Why would you have a lecture on the Bible's missing books and start with Muhammad Ali? But I'm not going to be talking about Muhammad Ali the boxer, but Muhammad Ali the shepherd. Muhammad Ali the shepherd did something rather remarkable uh, in 1945. In fact, out of a little town called Nagamati, Egypt in 1945, uh, Muhammad Ali was out digging in his field one morning with his brother Sharif Ali, and they were digging for fertilizer, which was not a very unusual thing to do in Egypt during this time period. And as he's digging for fertilizer in the field, turns out their shovel hits something hard. And as it hits something hard, he thought to himself, wait a second, is this, what in the world is this? So almost like something out of a movie, they start clearing away the dirt uh, around this and uncover this earthenware jar. And Muhammad Ali thinks, all my dreams have come true. Here, surely inside are treasure jewels or something like this. And He's about to crack it open when his brother says, Holt, wait a second, there may be an evil genie inside that will curse us. They actually had a conversation about this for a while. Apparently the evil genie was not too scary to crack open the jar, so they crack open the jar, and when they do, Muhammad Ali was profoundly disappointed. Inside were not jewels or gold or silver or any of these things. Inside were books. Uh, just, just rolled up codices, basically, inside this jar. And what he ended up realizing is, oh, this isn't at all what I thought it would be. Turns out he found 13 different books in there, inside of which were 52 separate tractates or stories. And if only he would have known what he found. Because it turns out that day, in 1945, he discovered what might be one of the greatest archaeological discoveries in the modern world. He discovered what came to be known as the Gnostic Gospels. The Gnostic Gospels is a collection of ancient Christian literature that you might have heard of that tells a very different story of Christianity. And more importantly than that, a very different story of Jesus. And at the center of these Gnostic Gospels was one particular text that all of you have heard of at one point or another called the Gospel of Thomas. Unfortunately, Muhammad Ali knew none of this. And he ended up selling it to some antiquities dealer who sold it to somebody, sold it to somebody, and eventually it came to be realized for what it was, maybe one of the most famous collection of books we have today. Ever since that day, People have been asking the same question that you are asking, which is, well, what do you do with books like the Gospel of Thomas? 
What do we do with its version of Christianity or its version of Jesus? And it tells a very different version of Jesus than you're familiar with. The Jesus of the Bible is a Jesus that sort of comes to save us. The Jesus of the Gospel of Thomas says, well, you don't really need God to save you. You can sort of save yourself. Uh, The Jesus of Christianity is a Jesus who's divine. But the Jesus of Gospel of Thomas says, well, no, basically you're divine. So it's a very different version of Jesus and a very different version of Christianity. And people ask the question, well, well, why not that gospel? And why not Matthew, Mark, why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And, and what about all these other gospels out there besides the gospel of Thomas? And why do we have the books in our Bibles that we really do? These raise very fundamental and core questions about the way early Christianity formed and the way our Bibles were put together. In fact, what you'll find in most conversations with non-Christians who know a little bit about these sorts of things, they'll mention books like the Gospel of Thomas as a reason for you not to take seriously the four canonical Gospels we have in our New Testaments. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were told nothing special about those. They're just one of many or four of many Gospels that were circulating in the ancient world. They're no better than any other Gospel, and you can either pick this one or that one. That is the narrative that's out there today. So here's what I want to do in this this first lecture. I want to, in one sense, debunk the narrative. Uh, What I want to do is I want to make the case for the canonical Gospels. Uh, To put it another way, I'm going to tell you what makes our Gospels different than all the other Gospels out there. So I'm going to lay out our case, and by doing so, I'm going to help you understand why we ended up with the canon of Gospels we did, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and why Gospels like the Gospel of Thomas are rightly outside of the biblical corpus. So this is going to be a chance to think about canon, biblical authority, early church history, sort of all wrapped up together. Um, and my goal here in this lecture this afternoon is not just to convince you. I trust, I hope, that you don't need convincing. What I'm hoping more is to inform you about the way these things happen so you can rightly interact with people who challenge the validity of the canonical four. And you can also appropriately understand what's going on with all these lost gospels that circulate. Okay. Before we dive into my case for the canonical Gospels, though, I want to take one step back for a moment and ask the question about why our culture is so fascinated with these lost Gospels. Uh, Before we jump into my case for the canonical Gospels, I want to ask the question of why people are so enamored with lost books, uh, why they're so attracted to things like the Gospel of Thomas. And by the way, they are. If, If you want to write a book that sells, write a book about a lost Gospel. I know that because I don't write books like that, and mine don't sell, so I can figure that out. I need to write a book about one of these lost Gospels and about how they're just as good as the canonical ones, and I'm sure if I did that, hey, you know, your books would go flying off the shelf. Uh, It seems like every Christmas and every Easter, there's always some article in a magazine that says, oh, well, you know, you thought Jesus was born in a manger, and you thought he rose from the dead. Well, not so fast, right? Because we have all these other Gospels out there that apparently have a different version of the story. So people are fascinated with this, and What I want to do before we dive into the issue more fully is ask, what is going on in our culture that makes people so interested in these lost gospels or alternative stories of Jesus? I want to suggest to you that what's going on in our culture explains a lot about what's going on in historians' offices. You know, when historians do their work, they're not doing it in isolation from the culture. Uh, They're doing their work as part of the culture. And I think their own work on lost gospels is actually symptomatic of the larger cultural situation. So how do we think about our culture's fascination? I want to suggest to you that there's one word that our culture loves, maybe more than any other word out there today, that captures their fascination with lost gospels. And that is the word diversity. Let me just say a few words about that. When I talk about diversity here, I'm not talking about ethnic diversity. I'm not talking about racial diversity. I'm talking about the diversity of ideas, okay? So be very clear about what kind of diversity I'm talking about. Our culture loves talking about the diversity of ideas. Our culture loves to point out how much disagreement there is in our world over the diversity of ideas, how there's so many different philosophies, so many different religions, so many different points of view. Uh, Always our culture labors this point and tries to show time and time again, well, Christianity is not the only game in town. There's other religions, other approaches, other philosophical systems that you can follow and believe in. Um, and this is sort of the, the, the sort of mantra of the day, to point out all the differences in diversity around us. And by the way, our culture's right about that. Our culture's right. There's a lot of diversity of opinion out there. In fact, that's not something that is really in dispute, the diversity of opinion uh, about religion. Uh, what is in dispute, though, are the implications that are drawn from it. 
And I want to suggest to you that there's a little bit of intellectual sleight of hand going on in this discussion of diversity. There's not any doubt that there is diversity. What is in doubt is the implications that are drawn from it. And the implications that are drawn from it are done so subtly you don't even know it's happening. And let me explain what I mean by that. Yes, there is a lot of disagreement and diversity out there, but that does not imply what the world thinks it implies, namely that due to all the diversity, no one view could possibly be right. And it's that second step that I would suggest to you that is the problem. Um, they look at all the diversity and say, therefore, not one view could possibly be right or you could never know what the one right view is. But if you notice, they never make an argument for the second step. They simply observe diversity and just assume the second step follows. But never was an argument made for that. And I want to suggest to you that merely observing diversity is not enough. You have to actually make the argument philosophically, historically, what have you, for why it means that no one view can be right. And so what our culture is is absolutely fundamentally fascinated by a diversity of ideas and the implication that no one view could possibly be right. Now, what has happened is that cultural sort of Kool-Aid that everyone's drinking has seeped into the world of historical studies, and it's seeped into the way gospels are studied in the academy. There's a figure that you need to know about if you're going to understand how this has happened. Um, and he's a name you probably never heard of before. His name is Walter Bauer. Uh, Walter Bauer wrote a very famous book in 1934 called Orthodoxy and Diversity, or, or sorry, Orthodoxy and Heresy in Earliest Christianity. Um, and in 1934, no one noticed Walter Bauer writing this book because he wrote it in Germany in 1934. And you know your history well enough to know that in 1934, no one was thinking about Walter Bauer. Everybody's thinking about this other guy named Adolf Hitler. And so he wrote this book in obscurity, and no one noticed. So fast forward 40 years almost, and in the 1970s, it was translated in English. And when it happened, it was like a bomb went off inside New Testament studies. Because here's what Bauer argued. Bauer argued that when you look into early Christianity, all you see is a lot of diversity. In fact, he said, when you look at early Christianity, it's just theological diversity everywhere. No one can agree on what they mean by Christianity. No one can get along theologically. No one has the same doctrine. Everybody's fighting it out for what the true version of Christianity is and isn't. In fact, what Bauer argues is that in the earliest phases of the church, there was no such thing as Christianity. All there was is Christianities, plural, all vying it out to see who would be the dominant, original, genuine version of the faith. And here's the payoff, Bauer says, and each of these different versions of Christianity had their own books. They all had their own canons. So the only reason you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is because your theological group won the debates. They prevailed in the theological battles in the early church. But what if another group had won? What if the Gnostics had won? Well, when you read your Bibles, you wouldn't be reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You'd probably be reading the Gospel of Philip, Gospel of Truth, Gospel of Thomas, and so on. You wouldn't be reading the Gospels you think, and you wouldn't know the difference. In other words, what Bauer is saying is that your Gospels are basically historical accidents. Does, it, it, just, it just happened to fall out that way. If another group had won and prevailed, you wouldn't be reading uh, the Gospel of Luke. It would probably be one of the other Gnostic Gospels. And so what that means, according to Bauer, then, is that no one Gospel is any better than any other. No one Gospel is more right than any other. It's just one set as the accident of history. And why should you think that your Gospels are special? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John aren't special. They're not different. They're not distinct. They just are the Gospels that are. And if some other group had won, you'd be reading different Gospels. So all Gospels are basically the same. No Gospel is better than any other. Now, what I just laid out for you, which is Bauer's theory, is the theory that's being taught in universities all over the United States and has been taught in universities all over the United States for the last 50 years. Uh, and it's become the accepted orthodoxy, that all Gospels are the same and there's no difference. Which is why when you get challenged on the score about your Gospels, you're thinking to yourself, yeah, well, what is different about our Gospels? Why, why should I think that my Gospels are any better than anyone else's? So we have to have an answer for that question. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do in this lecture. I want to give you at least a very brief answer to that question. But you have to understand the context out of which the question is coming. So to sort of put a, a, a sort of point on this little section of my lecture, one of the reasons people like and are fascinated with multiple Gospels is because it allows them to pick the Jesus they prefer, okay? It's just that simple. It allows them to pick the Jesus they prefer. You don't like the Jesus of the canonical Gospels? Well, fine. Find a Gospel that has the Jesus you like. 
there could be there could be very few things more applicable and more palatable to the modern Western religion than that. That you get to basically decide for yourself what version of Christianity you happen to prefer. That's why people love lost gospels. Now, now that you have that sort of context in mind, do we have any reason to think our four are the right ones? We do. So let me transition to the second half of my lecture here. Well, I'm going to lay out for you my case for the canonical four. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you four reasons, four things about our Gospels that make them different, that make them distinctive. Um, there's nothing actually that magical about the four things I'm going to tell you. Um, there's nothing about that that's original or secret. I'm not giving you new information today that you couldn't have found in other places. But actually, that proves the point I'm trying to make to you today, is that actually the case for the canonical four has been there for generations, and I think is rather strong. Um, and I think when all the dust settles, you realize, wait a second, maybe there's good reasons why our Bibles have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and not, say, Thomas or Peter or some other apocryphal gospel out there. Okay, so let me lay out these four things for you in our remaining time, and then I'll take questions uh, from you as we uh, wrap up today. So four reasons why our gospels are distinctive. Number one, our gospels, what we call the canonical gospels, are the earliest gospels we have. They are the earliest Gospels we have. I want to start with this very basic and so obvious point that gets overlooked far too often, is that our Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not only the earliest Gospels we have in our possession, we do not have, as scholars, as historians, as academics, any other Gospels that are earlier than these. Moreover, these are the only four Gospels that go back to the century in which Jesus lived, namely the first century. These are it. These are the only four that take us back into the time period in which Jesus actually lived and his followers lived. And here is what you find remarkable in scholarship is there's actually a very broad consensus on this point. Most scholars, and when I say most, I mean the vast majority of scholars date the canonical gospels, depending on which one you're talking about, somewhere between 50 and 90 AD. Depends where you're talking about Mark or Matthew or Luke or John, and we're not going to get into the particulars here. Uh, but that's a fairly broad, universal, agreed-upon consensus. And I can tell you in scholarship, that's pretty rare. Not, scholars don't agree about much of anything in academic circles. Um, you can't get four scholars in a room and get them to agree on much of anything when it comes to these sorts of matters. So the fact that you have any agreement at all on this is a rather noteworthy point. What you have then is a fairly widespread consensus that these Gospels are the only ones that go to the first century. And what's interesting about this consensus is to watch it be tested every now and then. And by the way, it is. Every now and then, a scholar sort of gets up the gumption to say, you know what, I'm going to try again to get some other gospel in the first century. And the most promising candidate over and over again for what gospel can make it into the first century is the gospel of Thomas. And it's almost like a, it's almost like a repeat record. I mean, it's like every 20 years, or every 15 years, someone tries again. They're like, they're going to write the book, and they're going to show that Thomas is really first century, and it gets us early Jesus tradition too, and so on. And every time it happens, the result is always the same. Scholars look at it and go, okay, let me hear your case, and they pay attention, and when the dust settles, they're like, mm, no. And this is remarkable because even secular scholars are doing it. Even Bart Ehrman is saying this. Th Gospel of Thomas, other Gospels, none of them are first century. The only Gospels we have are first century Gospels, are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, if I say that our Gospels are the only first century Gospels, then don't miss the corollary here. And this is really, really important. That means every other gospel we have, what we call apocryphal gospels, right? Lost gospels, so to speak. Every one of them is second century or later. You just need to let that sink in for a moment. Every single one of them is second century or later. In fact, many of them are much later, depending on the kind of apocryphal gospel you're talking about. Now, what are the implications of what I think is a very obvious first point? Let me just bear out a few of these implications before we move past it. First, if you were to sort of create your own sort of ideal biography of Jesus, you would have the desire to follow the most basic of historical principles, is that you'd want to get as close to the historical events you're recording as you possibly could. In other words, you'd want a gospel that was written as close to the life of Jesus as you could possibly write it. Um, this is just sort of the standard rule of thumb. Um, if you were to choose between a gospel written in the fourth century or a gospel written in the first century, which would you choose? And so historians agree upon this. Yeah, it doesn't solve every problem, but the closer to Jesus, the better you go. You'd always want a gospel that's further and closer back to the time of Christ. And if you're looking for that in a gospel, 
and you ought to be looking for that in the gospel, there's only one option for you. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The only gospels that actually get you into the very period that Jesus lived. Here's a second implication, and this one often goes unnoticed about this first point. And that is, if in fact these gospels are written in the first century, which we believe they were, that means that when they were published, there were eyewitnesses still alive that had actually seen the things they purported to record. Now that's a thing that we often don't think about. Aside from who the authors are, and we're going to get to that in a second, you have to realize that if these Gospels are published in the first century, that means there are people still around who could read them and say, no, that's not what happened. No, I saw that. No, I was there. No, that's not what took place. No, that's not who was the king of, of, uh, of Judea during this time. No, those historical details are wrong. Put it a different way, it's very risky to publish a gospel when you have eyewitnesses still alive who can contradict what you're saying. I mean, imagine the scenario. Imagine if, if Luke was written, the thing we call Luke, what if it was written in the 4th century, by way of example? Is there anybody around in the 4th century who could say, Luke's wrong? That I was there and it didn't happen that way? No, it's much different writing a gospel late than writing it early. Now, some people hear that and think, oh, but you assume that in the ancient world people cared about historical matters, and they cared about recording good history. No one thought about that in the ancient world, but that's not true. We actually have a number of examples in the Greco-Roman world of secular historians critiquing other histories for being good or bad. Um, Herodotus is a good example of this, where they go in and they say, well, look, this is lousy history. They're they're not using eyewitnesses. They're not using uh, reliable sources. That was done in the ancient world. People did critique historical accounts in the ancient world. So this whole first point is actually fundamental. If you want to get your best shot at knowing who Jesus really is and what he said and what he, did, what he did, then you've got to take the Gospels that take you closer to those events than any other Gospel. And those are only Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, pausing here for a moment, in one sense, we could stop here. I mean, there's a lot more to say, and we will say it. But in one sense, you could stop and say, if I want to show what makes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John distinctive, it's, it's already, in a sense, been done. They stand apart, if by nothing else, by virtue of their date and proximity to the time of Jesus. So if you're talking to your non-Christian friend, and they're asking about why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you don't remember anything else I say in this lecture, which is maybe likely, uh, maybe you'll at least remember one thing, right? Which is, well, I don't have a whole lot here, but I know at least one thing. They're the, they're the earliest Gospels we have, and they get us closer than any others to the story of Jesus. All right, let's look at a second thing then, moving on in my case. Four things I'm laying out here in my case for the canonical gospels. First is sort of the when question, right? And then the second one is sort of the who question. And that second point is this. The canonical gospels are the only gospels that have a credible connection to the apostles, that have a credible connection to the apostles. Second thing you want to ask if you're creating an ideal gospel is not only do you want a gospel that gets you as early and close to the time of Jesus as you possibly can, but the second thing you'd want is you want a gospel that was written by somebody who could know what they're writing about. You'd want a gospel that's written by somebody who was there. And if not somebody was there, who at least is getting his information from somebody who was there. So an eyewitness or someone who is a companion of an eyewitness would be the ideal thing that you'd be looking for in a gospel message. And that's exactly what the apostles are. You know here, being at Covenant College, what the apostles are. They were the original followers of Jesus, right? They were his inner circle. Uh, To put it sort of more in relational terms, they were his best friends. And not only were they his best friends, but they were commissioned by him to deliver his message. The apostles were given Christ's authority to speak for him and to deliver the good news of the gospel to the nations. Given the great commission, sent out by Christ, So yes, they're his inner circle. Yes, they were eyewitnesses. Yes, they were his best friends. But they're best friends with some sort of authoritative office by which they're telling Jesus' story. Now, if you were to create the perfect gospel, if you were to sort of build it from scratch, you would not only have an early one, but you would have one written by those people. I would want a gospel written by Jesus' inner circle. Imagine you were going to the bookstore, just to sort of lay this out by way of analogy, and you were looking for a biography of Abraham Lincoln. And you walked up to the shelf and you noticed a couple biographies on the shelf. There's one biography written by Abraham Lincoln's best friend. And then you see another biography that's just anonymous. Which would you prefer? 
I mean, even on a, on a human level, you're looking at that scenario going, well, wait a second, if, I, if I'm choosing between a biography written by his best friend and a biography written by who knows who, I'm taking the biography written by the best friend. And so the second factor is key for which Gospels will prefer. We want Gospels that at least have a shot of being written by Jesus' inner circle, being, have a shot at being written by an apostle. And here's where we come to the nub of the matter, is that the only Gospels that have that shot are the canonical Gospels. Now, what's interesting is that people ask me all the time, how do we know who wrote the canonical Gospels? There's a whole number of different things we get into here for how we know who wrote the canonical Gospels, and we won't fully get into it now. But one of the ways we know who wrote the canonical Gospels is by the earliest testimony we can get from patristic writers, church fathers who, very close to the matter, might have known these things. Now, I'll just give you one example to show you how historians do this. So take the Gospel of John, for example. How do we know that John was written by John? Well, there's all kinds of internal things we can look at in that gospel, but we also have very early testimony by a church father by the name of Irenaeus. Irenaeus is a second century church father, and he says, hey, John wrote John, okay? And so now the next question you're going to ask is, why should I trust Irenaeus? Where did he get his information from? Well, there's little doubt he got it from another earlier church father by the name of Polycarp, okay? Well, well, where did Polycarp get it from? And here's the amazing thing. Polycarp was a disciple of the apostle John himself. So I want you just to let this sink in historically. You've got the Apostle John, who mentors Polycarp, who mentors Irenaeus, and Irenaeus is the one who tells us that John wrote John. What you have then is historical testimony that's one person removed from Jesus himself in terms of the authorship, or sorry, not from Jesus himself, but from John himself, in terms of the authorship of John's gospel. That is a remarkably tight testimony. Now, someone could say, yeah, well, you know, Irenaeus could still be wrong. Yeah, he could be. You could say Irenaeus could be lying. Yep, he could be. But those aren't the questions we ask historically. We don't don't ask what could be true. We ask what's likely to be true, what's probable. And when you've got a person who's in a situation like Irenaeus who knows Polycarp, the the idea that it could be wrong or or that he could be lying, yeah, of course that's possible, but it's just not historically likely. Historically, you have very good tied evidence for thinking that John wrote John, and we could do this for all the Gospels besides Matthew and Mark and Luke. What does that mean? That means when we read our canonical Gospels, we're not just getting eyewitness testimony. We're getting testimony that is also commissioned testimony. It's like an authorized biography, right? Um, there's unauthorized biographies. I'm always, I don't know about you, but I'm always suspicious of unauthorized biographies. I read them like, so this is just some person who decided to write the story. But what if you had an authorized, the, the, the person they're writing about said, I want you to write my biography for me. That would be a compelling piece of evidence for why we should trust a book. Now, the corollary here is equally interesting, and that is if we have our canonical gospels only possibly written by, only gospels can be possibly written by an apostle, then you realize the apocryphal gospels have no chance of this. We don't have a single apocryphal gospel, and by apocryphal I mean these other lost gospels like Thomas that could have been written by an apostle. Why? Because they're all second century and later. That means what the gospel that's called the gospel of Peter, not written by Peter. That means the gospel is called the gospel of Thomas, not written by Thomas, because all of these are second century or later. Now, people ask me all the time, well, why do they call it the gospel of Thomas then? And I ask folks all the time, well, if you were writing a gospel in the second century and you wanted it to get a hearing, what would you call it? You wouldn't call it Bob's gospel, right? You'd call it something that someone could relate to, right? A name they might recognize, an apostolic name, and that's exactly what we see here. What we realize then is that these apocryphal gospels are basically mimicking what's already been true of the canonical ones. They're basically copying the canonical pattern by pretending to have apostolic names. So the second issue here is really key. So it's not just a when question, it's actually a who question. Let me move on to my third reason why I think the canonical gospels are distinctive, and that is thirdly, they lack the obvious legendary embellishments of the later apocryphal gospels. The obvious legendary embellishments of later apocryphal gospels. Let me explain what I mean by this. This is one that you may not have heard of before. One of the things that's remarkable about our canonical gospels is the way they tell the story of Jesus in such a straightforward, matter-of-fact manner. What I mean by that is that our, our canonical gospels come across actually fairly restrained. And when I say that, what I mean is there are certain things you would expect them to tell you that you would expect them to write if they were making it up. 
I'll give you a couple of examples of this. Ever notice that when you read the canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that you actually don't ever see an account of the resurrection happening? This is something most people don't actually reflect on very much. When you read the account of the resurrection in the gospels, you don't actually see it happening. What you see is the women showing up at the tomb after it's already happened, and the tomb is empty. And so you, you get an after-the-fact eyewitness account of the resurrection, but you don't get an account of it actually taking place. Now, what's interesting about that is that if you were writing your sort of flagship gospel and you were sort of making up stories of Jesus and the resurrection was your big crescendo and you wanted to show that it really happened, would you not have someone there to see it take place? Would you not have someone there to watch Jesus come out of the tomb? That's not what the canonical gospels have. They're amazingly restrained. I'll give you another example of this in the canonical gospels that's interesting is you get very little of what you'd expect to find out about Jesus in terms of his childhood. Hardly anything. In fact, we have a lot of details about his birth, and then we get a ton of details when he starts his public ministry. And what about everything in between? We get one story, right? Jesus in the temple and Luke, and that is it. And you might think if someone was telling the story of Jesus, wouldn't you be curious what Jesus was like as a kid? Don't you ever wonder what Jesus was like as a kid? Don't you ever wonder whether he got in trouble? Jesus ever get spanked? Um, you, do you ever wonder how many times Jesus' brothers and sisters heard the phrase, why can't you be more like your brother Jesus, right? I mean, what was it like for Jesus' child? The Gospels are utterly silent. Now, here's what's curious. The Gospels, earliest sources we have for Jesus, leave this without any comment. We don't have any of the early testimony about it. But here's what's curious. Our apocryphal Gospels, which are later, fill in the gaps, they actually tell a lot of stories that the canonical gospels leave blank. In fact, that's how we know these gospels are later, because they are actually filled in the gaps left by the canonical ones. So if you want to have a gospel that tells you about Jesus resurrecting from the dead and you can watch it live, there's a gospel for that. It's called the Gospel of Peter. I imagine some of you in the religious studies major here, or biblical studies major here, may have actually read the Gospel of Peter. Gospel of Peter is a fascinating gospel. What it is is an eyewitness account of Jesus coming out of the tomb. The stone rolls back and out Jesus comes, and you get to watch it live. But here's what's weird, is that when you watch it, something is odd about it. Something's not quite right about it. Because when you watch the resurrection of the gospel of Peter, Jesus comes out of the tomb, and he's not the Jesus you remember. He's a, he's a Jesus whose head reaches the clouds. He's like 60-foot Jesus. He's like giant Jesus. He's what I tell my students. He's like Godzilla Jesus coming out of the tomb, right, to the sky. And then not only that, it gets weirder. He's flanked by these angels, and they're, they're tall too, all the way up to the clouds. And then if you think that's not weird enough, then following Jesus out of the tomb in the Gospel of Peter is the cross itself. And you're like, well, how did the cross get in the tomb in the first place? It's not like that the Roman government typically gives you that as a you know, going away present or anything. Right here, take this with you. But then what's weird about it is you have to explain how it got in the tomb, and then what does it mean to say that it's following Jesus out of the tomb? Is the cross floating? Is it walking? We don't know. And then it gets even weirder. The cross starts to talk. And you're thinking, okay, so I finally get my gospel that gives me the live action view of the resurrection of Jesus, but something is not right here. And what you realize is, is that there's a qualitative difference between our Gospels and these apocryphal Gospels that most people never realize. And here's why they never realize it. It's because most people have never read the apocryphal Gospels, and most people truthfully have never read the canonical ones. Most of your non-Christian friends you talk to have actually never sat down and read a Gospel. Have they read a line from the Gospel? Sure. Do they know something about the Gospels? Probably. Have they ever actually read one straight through? How many of you have not just heard of the Gospel of Peter, not just heard of it, but read it. Wow, that might be a first, actually. Let's talk to your biblical studies guys. You probably ought to read it at some point, right? That's not a bad sign, though, right? It's good you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I hope. I won't take the poll on that one. Uh, <laughs> here's the point I want you to see is most people don't realize the difference. Now, let's imagine you want a gospel that tells you about Jesus' childhood. We got one of those, too. You've probably heard of it. It's called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. By the way, that's often confused with the Gospel of Thomas. They're two different Gospels. The Infancy Gospel of Thomas tells you about Jesus as a little kid. And just as you get excited to hear the story, don't be, because soon you're going to be terrified. You're like, this little kid is not, this is not like the Son of God. He's like Damon from the Omen or something, right? This kid's like evil. 
This kid goes around zapping people in the town. This kid is like a terror in his city. The people are afraid of him. There's a story in there where he's playing with another boy that upsets him, and, and kid Jesus zaps him and kills him on the spot. And then the town is upset, so what does the boy Jesus do? He raises him from the dead, of course, right? There's another scene where a boy Jesus is making sort of these clay pigeons on the Sabbath and breaking the Sabbath, and they say, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. And what does he do? He turns them into real pigeons, and the evidence flies away, and he's scot-free. You get this story. It's bizarre and weird and crazy, and it's this sort of little hellion Jesus running around. And you think, so I finally got my story of Jesus as a kid. But something just isn't right here. And here's what I want you to see. There is a fundamental qualitative difference between our Gospels and the other Gospels out there. And people say, oh, all Gospels are the same. That is a narrative that you hear. But here's the thing about that narrative. The all Gospels are the same narrative only works if you don't look at the historical evidence. If you just want to leave it on the level of rhetoric, it, it works. All Gospels are the same. All religions are the same. All philosophies are the same. No one right religion, no one right philosophy, no one right gospel. That rhetoric works as rhetoric, but if you want to look at historical facts, it starts falling apart quickly upon closer examination. Okay, fourth and final thing that sets our canonical gospels apart, and this might just be the biggest. If we want to know what gospels we should read as Christians, what gospels tell us about Jesus, we could ask the question a different way. We could say, what gospels did the early Christians prefer? What Gospels did they read? Now, here's where the narrative will continue, and people will tell you, oh, well, early Christians read all kinds of things. Early Christians didn't know what books to read. They read this, they read that. They were, it was all over the place. And so that can't help you. But actually it can, because once again, if you move past the rhetoric and onto the historical evidence, the historical evidence doesn't bear that out. Here's what you find when you look at the historical evidence, and that is that our four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were recognized at the very earliest stages of Christianity by believers. In fact, as far back as we can see, it's these Gospels. Our earliest canonical list from the second century, the Muratorian Fragment, it gives four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One of our earliest church fathers, Irenaeus, a towering figure in early Christianity. How many Gospels does he have? Four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Clement of Alexandria, another second century church father. He reads widely, tons of Gospels. How many does he have? Four and only four. Time and time again, it seems that there were four Gospels sort of built into early Christianity from the start, so much so that there was never a decision made about them. There was never a vote or a council about them. People ask me all the time, I'm going to talk about this tomorrow in my lecture, about misconceptions, but one of the biggest misconceptions people have is that there was, this was decided by some decision or some vote, the canon. Like, well, you know, when, when did the early church pick four Gospels? And the answer is they didn't. And that's what's so remarkable about them. They were there so early that to ask an early Christian why they picked the four Gospels, they may look at you strange. If you were in the second century and you're walking around interviewing people and you stuck a microphone in someone's face and go, hey, why, why did you guys pick Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? They'd be like, uh, what do you mean pick? We didn't pick them. They were just handed down to us from the beginning. It'd be kind of the equivalent of asking someone why they picked their parents, Right? Imagine that as a weird question. Oh, these are your parents over here. Interesting pair of people. Why'd you pick these two? You know, it's like, I don't know. Right? Just as far as I can remember, they were there, right? That's effectively what it was like in early Christianity for the four Gospels. There wasn't this sort of decision. It was they were built in. And we see that from the historical data. Here's some more facts for you about the four Gospels. Is that when we ask the question about whether the early church received apocryphal Gospels, the evidence disappears almost entirely. One of the things we see in early Christianity is we see codices, manuscripts, where multiple Gospels are bundled together in the same book. Okay? So we see codices with all the Gospels in them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we have lots of these in early Christianity. You know what's one thing we never have in early Christianity? Is a codex with a mix of Gospels. We never have a codex that has, say, Matthew, Mark, and Thomas. Or Matthew, Luke, and Peter. Ever. Not even once. Never happens. We have a lot of canonical lists in early Christianity. We don't have a single canonical list that mixes apocryphal and canonical gospels, ever. And then I think one of the most telling pieces of evidence for popularity of apocryphal gospels is how many manuscripts they left behind. I have a whole different lecture on this I'm, I'm not giving this week, but I give in other places where we can actually gauge the relative popularity of literature in early Christianity by how many manuscripts we have now of those books because that tells us a bit about how much they were copied. We have, we have hundreds of copies of the Gospels in the early centuries, and over the course of early 
Christianity, we have thousands. What's interesting is that when it comes to apocryphal gospels, we have hardly any. You know that, that we have more copies of the Gospel of John alone from the 2nd and 3rd centuries than all other apocryphal books combined. Stunning fact. The, the, the apocryphal gospel that has the most manuscripts in the 2nd and 3rd centuries is the Gospel of Thomas with a grand total of three. And two of those are utterly useless in terms of their fragmentary nature. What does all that tell you? It tells you this simple fact is that if you ask what early Christians were reading, it wasn't ambiguous or in doubt. They were reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, I suppose someone could say, oh, but it was a big fraud. These, these Christians were just deceived very early, and that they just happened to all agree, and they happened to all be on the same page just very early, and someone tricked them, and those aren't really the right gospels. Okay, you could go down that route. Once again, that's not asking the right questions. Is it possible that could happen? It's possible, but that's not what historians ask. Historians ask what's probable, what's likely. Trying to manufacture that sort of fakery that early just won't work. It seems to be something about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that Christians recognize very early make them legitimate gospels. Now, tying this all together, what I've tried to do here is lay out four reasons that make our gospels different. They're the earliest gospels we have. Second, they're the only gospels that have a credible chance of being written by apostles. Third, they lack the obvious later legendary embellishment of the apocryphal gospels. And fourth, they were the gospels that were widely and roundly preferred by early Christians. So let's return to our narrative. Our narrative is all Gospels are the same. That's a good story, and it works good if you're sending out a, something on Twitter. Um, but if you want to do something more deep than that, you realize it just doesn't hold up. If you look at the historical facts, it looks like there's a reason why our Gospels are in. It looks like the Christians weren't arbitrary. If you want to know something about Jesus, there's really only one place where the Christians went, and that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, I said we would save some time for Q&A, and we've got some. So this is the fun part, right? So here's your chance to ask your question. It can be about the lecture, it can be about other things, and we'll just kind of go from there. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, so the question, if you didn't hear it, was, well, what do we do with these parts? I think you meant to say bracketed parts, not italicized parts, although different English Bibles do it in different ways. So you ever get to the end of Mark's gospel, and there's a little bracketed part that says these, are, these verses are not included in our earliest manuscripts? It's a great question. I get that question a lot. Um, so that is a, a little bit of a different question than we're covering here. We're covering here about sort of the question of which books. You're asking the question of now that we know which books, which text, right? Which is, you're like, sure, that's what I meant to ask. Um, and so it's really an issue of textual criticism. Uh, that's its own area and own field. Uh, actually, you've written about this quite lengthily. Um, my book, um, uh, The Heresy of Orthodoxy, I have a whole two chapters on this and at the end of it. And I actually just wrote a very lay-level article for uh, Table Talk. Just came out in the issue last month on that question, on the long ending of Mark. I, in terms of the long ending, what that's called is the long ending of Mark. I don't think long ending of Mark was originally in Mark. Um, people think, oh, no, does that threaten our gospel integrity? Not at all, and I give reasons for that. We have so many copies of Mark and the other gospels that we can reliably reconstruct the original text without really any ambiguity that's concerning. And so, but those passages are there for historical reasons I won't get into here, but that's an interesting question. I'm sure your classes here will cover that at some point. Good. Other questions, either about what I said or... Maybe you've been waiting for that one zinger question. You've been waiting to ask somebody. Here's your shot, right? So, yeah. Um, I don't know about Jubilees. If you're, if you're asking the question about the Old Testament Apocrypha, which I think is what you're getting at there. So the Old Testament Apocrypha are what are called sort of intertestamental books. 1st, 2nd Maccabees, Judith, Tobit, et cetera, that are, were later adopted by Roman Catholics at Trent. So the question is, well, it's really an Old Testament canon issue, not a New Testament canon issue. And so the question is, well, does the New Testament ever allude to those books? Yes, it does. Uh, the New Testament alludes to many types of writings, actually. Apocryphal, what are known as the Apocrypha, those books you referred to, and other books as well. But here's the catch, is that it never refers to them as Scripture. This is the key. So if you ask the question, which books do the apostles, Peter, Paul, John, etc., and Jesus quote as scripture, it's always the books that are in our Old Testament canon. 
and they never a single time ever quote what we call apocryphal book as scripture. What does that mean? That means those books were useful, helpful, but not scriptural. And that's what the Protestant, Protestants historically believe that very thing. Yep, up in the back. Well, it depends what you mean by apocrypha. If you mean the Old Testament disputed books that this gentleman was talking about, um, then uh, that's one, one answer to that. If you mean what's called New Testament apocrypha, Gospel of Thomas, that's another thing. Um, you refer to the Old both? Yeah, yeah, throw it all in there. Why not? Um, so he, here's my general sense is, is that there's many books outside our Bibles, outside the canonical books that can have useful information in them. And I think, you know, books like, you know, Jubilees and Maccabees and so on are, can be helpful books um, and, and give us interesting insights and historical information and background. But we always have to be careful that we don't, nec- don't treat them as Scripture unless they're Scripture. And so the same is true with Apocryphal Gospels, by the way. One of the things I teach my students is there's some apocryphal gospels that are more reliable than others. Uh, the Gospel of Thomas is not one of them, but there's other apocryphal material out there that, you know, you think, man, maybe there's some nugget of this. It might have some historical va- validity to it, but, but we don't, therefore, put it in the canon and preach from it. Um, so what we look w- for material like that is we say, okay, is it orthodox? Is it useful? Is it helpful? Fine. We could use it, but not use it as scripture. Get to sign what we mean by use it, right? We can use it, but not as scripture. Good. Yes. Yeah, so we get the order of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John from our earliest Christian manuscripts. Um, It's interesting that there was a variety of orders in our earliest Christian manuscripts. Um, And they would mix them up a little bit. But historically, there was a dominant order, which is the traditional order we have now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But there were different orders. Uh, there, There were some Gospels, orders where it was Matthew, John, Mark, and Luke. Uh, or sorry, Matthew, John, Luke, and Mark, I should say. Um, and uh, so you have John right after Matthew in some instances. Um, but we gen- generally conclude, we just generally use the order that was the most common in early Christianity. What is curious is that Matthew's always first. And, uh, and I think you know why, even though you probably haven't reflected on it, is it's, the, it's, the, it's all those verses you just skip over when you start Matthew. Um, you start Matthew, it starts with the genealogy, and you're like, boring, moving on. But that's exactly why. Matthew is the most fitting first book of the New Testament because he does something that is quintessentially Old Testament in its nature. He starts a book with a genealogy. Well, other books started with a genealogy in the Old Testament, Book of Chronicles. If you know anything about the Old Testament canonical books and their order, the Old Testament canon was in a different order. And guess what the Old Testament canon ended with most likely in Jesus' day? Chronicles. So here's an interesting factoid for you. In Jesus' day, the Old Testament ended with a book that starts with a genealogy, and the first book of the New Testament starts with a book uh, that has a genealogy. And both genealogies focus on the same person, namely David. Other questions? Yes. (laughs) Uh, Well, I think for lots of reasons. Um, You know, uh, yeah, well, so... I think what your question is getting at is there's some books I read, and I'm like, what in the world is this book in here, right? Um, but I think Song of Solomon, we would all agree, is not the only one we do that with. Um, you know, when's the last time you heard a sermon from Third John? When's the last time you read Third John, right? Um, and you realize, wow, there's some books in here that just don't seem to have a lot to offer. I think the Song of, I think the Song of Solomon actually does have a lot to offer. Um, I think it's in the canon for multiple reasons. One is, I think it is a picture of, of the beauty of marriage, which is a key biblical topic. And God has a lot to say about marriage. But it's also a picture, I think, of, of uh, sort of symbolically and theologically of Christ and his bride, the church. So I think there's multiple reasons for it that would be in there. Good. You guys love the Old Testament. All these Old Testament questions. I love it. Yes. Um, yeah, I, it's an interesting question you're asking. In other words, you're saying, well, if we think there's ancient groups that read these books and followed them, are there modern groups that do that? Yeah, and the answer is pretty much no. And what I mean by modern groups is not recognizable f- official denominational structures that say, yes, we have a new candidate that includes this. Um, what you'll find is the Gospel of Thomas and books like it tend to float around in people's repertoire as books they per- wish were in the canon, 
um, and books they may prefer over the canonical four, but I don't know of a denomination that's officially adopted them. Although you'll find liberal denominations with people in them that so want to be progressive that they'll be like, well, we don't read just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We'll read Thomas too. And okay, on paper they say that, but then at the end of the day, they don't ever do it. So I don't know anybody who's really using these books as, with, as religious, really religious uh, books these days, but I'm, sh I'm sure individuals do, even if churches don't. So interesting question. I've never gotten that question before. Interesting one. Other questions? Yeah. Yeah, an interesting question. Yeah, so one, one, I think another way to, to, to phrase your question is when you do deep academic work, what impact does it have on you? And there's the question of what impact it should have on you, right? But then there's the question of what impact it has had on you. Um, in my field, which is studying the reliability of the scriptures, particularly the New Testament, I have been regularly encouraged by what I've discovered and what I've found. Um, and when I say encouraged, what I mean is I, I've been not surprised because I've always believed the Bible is true, but encouraged to see that there's so much more evidence for the truth of Scripture than I realize. And the more I get into it, the more I'm encouraged that, wow, there, there really is a reason why we believe what we believe. And that's, of course, part of the reason that you do the Imago Day lectures, right? And part of the reason I'm here is to try to help give you some of those nuggets for why you can be confident for why you believe what you believe. That doesn't mean that unless you go get a PhD, you can't have certainty about what you believe. And people do make that mistake. They're like, well, you just can't know unless you go get a doctorate. I, I disagree. You can go get a doctorate and still not know a lot of things um, and actually think you know more than you do. Um, but it has encouraged me. And so if you're asking sort of on a personal level, on a testimonial level, I've been very encouraged. I think it's, I think it's strengthened my faith. Now, you know, Different people have different intellectual experiences. I know people go off and get a PhDs and they lose their way. Uh, so it's not just that you go study the facts. That's all you need. You need to study the facts in light of God's worldview and God's word, submitting to his word even when you struggle with certain things. So it's a way you study that's going to keep you on the right track, not just if you study. But for me, it's been a beneficial experience. Yeah, um, so obviously critical scholars are going to have their rebuttals along the way. Here's what I've discovered, though, is that critical scholars who might disagree with why we think the canonical gospels are unique, actually very few of them make the case that the apocryphal gospels are better. What they typically do is say they're all rubbish. Okay. In other words, in order to get rid of, they, they, they know it's an it's a uphill battle to choose Thomas over the canonical gospel. It's just ridiculous. And, and every scholar knows it. And so there's a sense in which they, they know it's going to look bad to say Thomas is true and the canonical ones aren't. So what they'll typically do is say, well, all of them aren't true. They'll just shove them all into the same category. So th their argument would be a little different. Their argument wouldn't be they're all the same in the sense that they all could be true, but they're all the same in terms of they're all unreliable. This is Bart Ehrman's argument. Ehrman would say, of course Thomas isn't first century. Of course Thomas isn't reliable, but neither are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, he would agree they're first century. He just doesn't think they, they're reliable. Um, he would probably, uh, Ehrman would, would probably say, I don't agree with, with our analysis of authorship, which is a larger debate we can get into here. He'd probably contest, uh, you know, which gospels are received in early Christianity, although I think the evidence there is pretty overwhelming. So there would be rebuttals, but I, I think very few scholars go all in on Thomas as an example. In fact, uh, uh, Paul Foster, who's a, uh, a scholar at the University of Edinburgh who's, um, he wouldn't be in the evangelical world, but is a, is a friend of mine, just came out recently with, um, I forget, was it an article or a lecture where he basically acknowledged that these apocryphal gospels just are not reliable sources for anything true about Jesus. And so I'm like, thank you. you know, here you got a secular scholar who's honest. These apocryphal gospels aren't going to tell you much of anything. He's not going to be believing in inerrancy like us when it comes to canonical gospels, but at least he recognizes the difference between them. Yeah.
Well, you may have to clarify your question for me. Are you, are you asking the question, does, does every secular scholar that condemns the canonical gospels claim to be a non-Christian? Is that kind of where you're going with the question? Uh, well, it <laughs> depends what you mean by uh, a Christian. So there's certainly plenty of people that claim to be Christians. Um, and there's plenty of people even in the secular world that would claim some sort of a ecclesial affiliation um, that even are ordained. Um, you know, if you went up to one of the major, some of the major mainline seminaries, Princeton, Yale, what have you, there's going to be a lot of ordained Christian, quote, teachers there that have theories that are wild and all over the place. So can I find someone who professes to be a Christian, at least on a perfunctory level, who debunks the canonical gospels? Of course, in spades. Can I find anybody who would have uh, sort of sort of Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, sort of historic Christian credentials who does that? Very, very, I don't know if I know of one. So there, you, know, you realize that if you're standing within any sort of reasonable tradition of Christianity, you're not, you're not kicking these Gospels to the curb. It just doesn't make sense. All right, we've got time for one or two more, and then I was told that we'll end at five. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually cover this in my most recent book. So my most recent book is Christianity at the Crossroads, and I have a whole chapter in there on apocryphal material, and I get into motives a little bit. Um, and there's many that we can surmise. Some stated, some implied about why people write apocryphal books. Um, and there, there's, I'll give you several of them. Some people actually think they've uncovered genuine Jesus tradition, and they're just recording it, okay? Whether they're mistaken or not, they think this really happened, and they're probably passed down to them either orally or in written form. They think they preserved a real story of Jesus. We know other people wrote apocryphal literature because they wanted to, to, to further certain controversial doctrines. If you have a heretical doctrine that you're trying to sort of promote, what better way to promote it than to get it on the lips of Jesus? If you can get Jesus saying it, then you get a lot of traction. By the way, that's still true as a side note, right? If you can get Jesus saying it, everybody agrees, right? So you can, you can see people in the modern day still trying to make Jesus on their side. So that's a motive. Another motive, I think, that comes up uh, is entertainment. Um, and that's this, I'm not making this up. A lot of scholars have noticed that a number of apocryphal works actually look like ancient Greco-Roman novels where people write just for fun stories. This is particularly true for the apocryphal Acts, and I think probably true for the infancy Gospels. The Infancy Gospels are entertaining, and if you haven't read it, go read it. It's entertaining. Um, could Christians have written these stories without any real sense of trying to think they're true, but just they're just fun sort of hypotheses about what Jesus would be like as a kid? Possibly. Um, so you have a whole mix of motives, heretical, positive, not so positive, all jumbled together. So not everybody who wrote an apocryphal gospel was nefarious, plotting to destroy the church. Some probably were trying to promote false doctrine. Um, some apocryphal gospels we have are fairly orthodox. Um, I did a, my, my, my PhD work on an apocryphal gospel fragment. It doesn't even have a name. It's called, it was discovered at a place called Oxyrhynchus, Egypt, so it's called Oxyrhynchus 840. How's that for a name? It's like, it sounds like a star system or something. Oxyrhynchus 840 is an apocryphal gospel fragment that just sounds like our gospels. It sounds a lot like ours in terms of, in terms of the tone and the pace and the orthodoxy. It's a totally different story. Um, Maybe that was a person just trying to preserve something they heard they thought happened. We don't know. So probably a mix of things. Um, regardless of whether there's true parts in some of those or not, as I said earlier, at the end of the day, we, we have just our, our four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All right, we're at the top of the hour. Let me uh, remind you that for those who are still interested in these matters, at 11 a.m. tomorrow I'll be speaking on uh, the top five misconceptions about the formation of a canon which includes a number of other, I think, fascinating things. And let me close this on a word of prayer as we dismiss. Lord, we're thankful for a chance to peruse these things, to think about them. Encourage us, Lord, today. Remind us that these Gospels are the best shot we have of knowing you and, Lord, are reliable to tell us who Jesus is and what he did. So we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. I'll be down here for questions if you have them.